You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Blake Charlton. His new book is Spell Right. Thank you for joining me, Blake. It's a pleasure. Blake, this is a, a novel that's concerned at its core with language. A- and uh, as I was listening to you read and, and, and in your book, I thought, this is a man who spent a little bit of time in Dungeons & Dragons. It's very true. Uh, the uh, You know, when I was younger, I was severely disabled, couldn't learn to read, but uh, Dungeons & Dragons is, was a way of storytelling and a way of encountering uh, kind of ideas and texts. And uh, Gary Gygax, the fellow who invented Dungeons & Dragons, had a very interesting idea about magic, which he actually uh, stole from Jack Vance's Dying World series, in which uh, spells and magic were learned from the text, and you could hold a certain number of these texts in your mind, and once you cast a spell, it came out of your mind. And when I was very young, um, this idea, you know, and being dyslexic and not, and the, all the writing seeming just like magic and mush, uh, this idea that, that Gygax put together of like the, 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 the sentences and the words like staying in your mind and coming out of you, that really, it was really powerful for me uh, as someone who felt kind of intrinsically that the written word was kind of magic, and I was struggling to deal with my disability to, to get through it. One, this book has a huge appeal to everybody who reads because it's, it literally is about the magic of the reading experience. And that's, uh, it's very intentional, you know, and uh, you, a lot of cultures and many, many cultures going back, you see runes as this idea that you can somehow, with letters, with characters, harness kind of uh, the otherworldly and the, the, the amazing part. And the funny thing is, in our culture today, we still do that. We still believe that, we believe both in the power of art, but also in the power of science, that we could somehow put down, uh, you know, we can, we can codify and write down the rules to the universe and, you know... Uh, force equals times mass times acceleration you know it's a we can use uh, language and symbols to represent the natural and uh, it's like it's a powerful idea that's ancient and still with us today well i love this idea of language as a technology that you can literally rip from the page and, and use in the physical world uh, talk about um, in a in a book like this the rules are really important talk about creating the rules and living by them yourself so the rules were kind of part of it that was a lot of fun for me. And the inspiration came from this when I was uh, almost a chemistry major in college. And I was taking a biochemistry class and I had two very, very poetic uh, British uh, synthetic chemist professors. And they, they're, they're, very, they're very poetic people, synthetic chemists are. And they used to talk all the time about how in organic chemistry, you, it was like learning a language. You had to, you had to learn the, the, the vocabulary, which are the molecules, and you had to learn the grammar, which is the reactions. And then you can write a poem, any large macro molecule is an organic poem and that that idea really it kind of stuck with me and I, I thought it was a brilliant and a beautiful idea and I was learning all these codified rules about organic chemistry and about biochemistry and at the same time we were learning how like a slight misspell a slight error in some of these biopolymers nucleotides in um, uh, our DNA and RNA and polypeptides and proteins you know if you get one of those letters wrong uh, you can get a horrible disease right and so I that was kind of the inspiration and the kind of the moving moment behind the magic system was that, you know, language, you, you know, is, we're even made out of language. You know, we talk about the language of proteins or the language of DNA. And uh, 
that's where the ideas of the rules came from. And so I cribbed a lot from uh, my studies in, in science and biotechnology. And uh, really what I was trying to create was kind of a science fantasy, a hard fantasy, something that was had a, a bit of science fiction in it. And um, it did, of course, create a lot of headaches later on because you had to kind of, you had to, you know, follow the rules you set for yourself. Um, but uh, making the story fun while living was, was kind of, was half of the challenge and, and was what kept me going. You know, as you were describing this, I was thinking that this is like exactly like The Matrix, but viewed as a fantasy novel instead, fantasy work of fantasy instead of a work of science fiction, and it's really a flip side of the same coin. It's really interesting. I get a lot of computer programmers that are really interested in it, and they they and they and the, the comparison to The Matrix is made quite often. And they and they're you know I, uh, the people show up on my blog and then ask about you know how command prompts etc cetera, etc cetera, work on different magical languages. All the different magical languages in this world uh, obey slightly you know use slightly different commands. And I you know I think I read C for dummies, but that's it for me. Like. And I, I see HTML and CSS. I can I can I can hot code in those things. But it really like this 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 is a world that you you know you and I live in. We live in a world of bi- a biological language and language is, is that and and computer language is just another is just another way that biological language has of expressing itself. And so you know I, the Matrix kind of turned it upside down. Like what if we were all made of computer code? Um, and I, you know I wanted to go back to the original, which is you know the you know this idea that we really do live in the Matrix. And it just happens to be nucleotides, um, and trying to change, and like, and you're right, and and using that idea, but instead of turning it into a sci-fi, turning it into a, a kind of a high classic fantasy. One of the things you do really well is humor, a- and I I love how funny this stuff is. It makes it really enjoyable. How do you like start out with something that's really geeky and language oriented, and bring out all that humor? Well, I, I think that's part of part of the reason why it's able to. I mean, part one of the reasons why one of the things I love, and I and my 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 editor probably good hit me over the head a million times to get the puns out. But in my mind, humor is about kind of a duality of meaning. Whenever whenever you make a joke, whenever you laugh, you're kind of making this argument that's either absurd or something, and that causes you to laugh. That you're splitting meaning, and uh, because this is this is a book about double meanings, it's about all these other things. Uh, I think it lends itself to that. This, I mean, and I might have given you a slightly false impression because I was kind of hamming it up for the crowd. Um, but uh, this book is a lot more about adventure and, and mystery than it is about humor. But the, the humorous parts uh, are a lot of fun to write. And I think they make, they make the, compa- the, the scary parts scarier and the, the action parts more active because, because you've been peppered with a little comic relief. Well, one of the things I like about this book is that you uh, use the mystery genre to, to within your world, and, and that's one of the things I really like about mystery. It seems to be the genre that you can implant at the core of any other kind of genre and have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think in especially in science fiction and fantasy, I think we tend to kind of get a little too insular sometimes, and I think there's a lot of really fun cross-pollination that can happen in there, and I read a lot of thrillers, I read a lot of mysteries, and, you know, at, at its core, there's not a whole lot that's different between, you know, a young doctor who discovers Genentech is doing something evil and awful and has to go on a quest to stop them, and, you know, a dwarf who needs to collect a bunch of hobbits and drop a ring off at the crack of doom, right? Like, there, there there's a lot of analogy between, you know, we, we, we tend to draw these bright lines 
lines that are really more about marketing than anything else. But the stories and the stuff of stories really can be kind of moved around. And I think that you know that the big the, the big thing on the news now is that romance, right, can be translated uh, very easily into fantasy. And we're seeing uh, you know urban fantasy, and we're seeing a lot of romance-based fantasy, and it's wonder wonderful stuff. And having just read with Gail, um, uh, you can see that like that idea is catching hold. But I think there's a, there's a lot of room for for many different kind of cross pollinizations. Talk about um, creating a, a fantasy world based in language and yet making the action and the plot like really accessible and fun for the reader who lives in a world that is very different. Right. And so this was, you know, this was kind of one of the major challenges. And uh, because it, 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 the inspiration for this is is very intellectual, right? Uh, you know, if you say I came up with a fantasy class when I was sitting in biochemistry, like most of the world's going to roll their eyes at you. So um, the way the way I did this, you know, when I learned to read, I was I was 14 years old, I was severely dyslexic, and nothing really was working me. I wasn't really interested in books at all. But then I discovered kind of some of the now classic fantasies, Robert Jordan, Robin Hobb. Uh, and I would sneak these books, Tad Williams, um, Ursula K. Le Guin. I would sneak these books into special ed study hall and I would read them under my desk. And this idea of adventure and of, of uh, you know, compelling uh, of danger and threat, uh, kind of, I got so excited about these books, I taught myself to read so I could get to them. And so, it, you know, it, I wanted to mirror that experience. I wanted a world with that was hyper-intellectual and was really difficult that you had to struggle to understand how the languages worked. And yet, you know, there's a bad guy coming to get you and, you you know, you'd better figure it out or, you know. Uh, and you know, so I wanted... The idea was to make younger people... Uh, who are reading it feel old because they're encountering all this intellectual stuff. And at the same time, to make older people who were okay with the intellectual stuff feel very young because they had an adventure story again. So I'm trying to kind of push everybody towards the middle, and, and I don't know, maybe I'm just upsetting everybody by not falling into any category. But that, I mean, that was the goal. One of the things that I think is really charming about your book, and I think gives it such a, a, a wide appeal, is the kind of educational setting. Because when you're encountering a foreign world, a world that you don't know at all, the best way to get to know it is to, like, you literally put the reader in school. Right. And this is, it's an academy at, uh, it, you know, and, and the big bear in the room, of course, and I'm surprised you'd mention it, is Harry Potter, right? Like, if you're going to write a magic academy book, you know, people kind of exhale and, okay, are there owls? No, there aren't owls, you know, and, uh, it, you know, and, and when I first started to write this uh, 10 years ago and I picked up the first Harry Potter, I just swore like a sailor because I thought there's no way that anyone, they're just going to think this is a Harry Potter knockoff. A sailor with Tourette. Uh, yeah, a sailor with Tourette syndrome, but repeatedly when he's in port with lots of wine. Um, but uh, I just couldn't, you know, you could, you can't write, uh, to some extent, this is a book about conquering a disability that's an intellectual disability, and there's just no way to write that outside of an academy. And the book is a series, and only the first one takes place in the academy, and, and uh, after, after book one, we, we wander off and we see other things. Um, but trying to show that there is, there is life in the academic fantasy beyond Harry Potter uh, was really, it was a challenge, and one I hope I, I somehow managed to squeak through. <clears throat> Talk about creating a fantasy trilogy when you're immersed in hardcore, hardline science. That actually, I mean, I think it's the most fun. Uh, and it's it's such a wonderful relief and to use different parts of your brain. You know, as a medical student, uh, it's it's a totally different way of thinking. We're, we are just basically memorizing machines. And I hear it changes later on when we become actual physicians. But uh, when you get out into the actual world and, and encounter the real adventures. Yeah, yeah. and when you have actual problems, like theoretical problems and multiple choice tests and et cetera, et cetera. But now it's just, it's just memorizing names of risks 
risk factors and and side reactions and it's just it's like going back to being in grammar school it's like going back to having to memorize everything all again and like having to get through all that school just to land right back into drilling and all that uh, it, it just it makes me long for you know the creative and the effusive and so uh, in a way it kind of I think is an advantage because I crave it so much that I, I that that the, the books really provide an outlet for that. Now you have a, a fantasy trilogy. Talk about creating an arc for a first book that grabs both the editor who you're trying to sell it to and the readers and thinking out you know out further along that's got to be a kind of a challenge that's really hard and in fact you know when i was a newbie and i wrote this book when I, 10 years ago when i wrote it I, I went a to z all in one go and the book was heavy enough to qualify as exercise equipment and uh so then exactly what you're talking about the, the, it needs to you know it needs to pass all it needs to get green lights on the publication side and it needs to be accessible what ended up having is I, I took this one massive book I wrote when I was 20 and then I had to kind of and this was the hardest and most painful part I had to like parse it into three different books and figure what went where and this involved deleting characters I loved and mashing two characters uh, together to become one character and it was it was it was terribly difficult and as a result um you really, you really have to. At the end of the day, writing is about making choices, and you, and one of the choices you have to decide is what you're not gonna do. And uh, originally, there was a major romantic theme theme running throughout the entire book, but uh, I couldn't get, I couldn't make, you know, a concise. Uh, and by the way, in writing epic fantasy, I think you need a beginning, middle, and end period. You know, you know, books that flirt with epic and and, and hop into bed with endless just upset me so much. Uh, I, and so I just uh, you need to stop and start a story every single time. And the, even though you're telling one big story with all three, you need to end that story three times. It's hard. Um, so the one of my fa- one of my favorite characters, possibly more so than even the the protagonist, which shares a lot of things with me. Uh, she got moved to the second book, and we don't introduce it. And that that was heartbreaking. That was so hard. Um, but it made complete sense. Uh, give, given exactly what you said, that you need to get through, you need to uh, get through the publishing houses, and then you need to reach an audience, and you you have to make really tough choices in doing that. Now, this is something that you have to do as a passion, and, and I'm gonna wonder how much time you have for passion, and how much sleep you get when you're in medical school and trying to write a fantasy trilogy. Not not much sleep. Uh, it's it's really you've really got to, it's it's like not only a labor of love, it's a labor of patience and a labor of perseverance. There's a little bit of smoke and mirrors in that I'm an older medical student. I took five years off, uh, in which I would write on and off, and I was kind of teaching myself to write uh, novels back then. I would run out of money, and I'd, I'd take a job as a teacher or a technical writer, uh, or I was a football coach for a while. Um, and those were a lot of great life experiences, which I fed back into the book. So I had a lot. I had I had my like you know uh, seven thousand ten you know ten thousand hours of practice under my belt by the time I started medical school. The hardest part about like becoming a novelist is actually getting the ten hours ten thousand hours of practice in before you start to write that first novel you're going to publish. Um, and so. I had a bit of advantage there. And the other thing that really has worked out well is that Stanford has been, uh, I can't imagine a school having, being more supportive. They have a program uh, called the Medical Humanities Program, which they, you know, recruited me into. And uh, I'm currently on a two-year research fellowship to finish up the um, the series. I'm just about to put, turn book two in, knock on wood, and then we'll knock off book three, and then I go back into the clinic. And so I've had a, a lot of really wonderful support from from my medical school, which and I, I, it wouldn't be possible without them. 
I just want to ask a little bit about your vision of yourself, maybe five or ten years down the line. Do you see yourself practicing medicine, writing both? Both. I think absolutely. That's been the dream from day one, and there are a lot of uh, examples out there. Uh, one of the things Stanford offered to me was uh, uh, the best mentor uh, a person in my position could have, Mr. A- uh, Dr. Abraham Verghese, whose novel Cutting for Stone has been on the New York Times bestseller list I don't know how long. Um, and, it, you know, you've got two very difficult things to balance. Um, you've got, you know, your art and your practice, and you've got to balance them both. Uh, it is very doable. They've shown me it's doable. Um, and more to the point, uh, I think your life expands bo- at both ends. I think you are a better physician and healer when you understand the complete world of your patient, and you, to some extent, have to do this with imagination. Um, and it's very, and it's funny. People, people want to ask you all the time, how can you stand to be a physician um, artist? And and yet, if you ran, if there are plenty of MD PhDs out there that run labs too, and they also see patients, and we don't have that same suspicion of them uh, because you know we think that because they're doing something with enzymes that it translates. Perfectly, it doesn't. They they have the same problem. Uh, and there are physician activists who become politicians. They have the same problem. Um, there are uh, the physician entrepreneurs at Stanford starting companies. You know, uh, medicine because it's about kind of the intersection of what makes us human, uh, our needs, our frailties, and technology. Because it has all these intersections, it attracts people that want to be in both worlds. And I think I mean that's one of the reasons why uh, you know I couldn't imagine a better life course for me. I've been speaking with Blake Charlton. His new book is Spell Right. Thank you for joining me, Blake. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.